Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy. Uh, so here is uh, what we want to do this morning. We're going to be talking about Mark. We're going to be continuing going through the gospel. But I wanted to, before I get there, I wanted to kind of talk about Cascade and some structural pieces. Um, If you've been around Cascade for the last couple of months, you might feel like a bit of whiplash in who's communicating. Because from September to October, I think it was like lots of different people for eight straight weeks. And then through December into now has been a lot of me. Um, And the reason for that is a a couple of fold. We have an amazing teaching team. Um, That's about eight different people that we meet and we kind of plan out these message series. And the hope is always for our teaching team that they would be able to take things that are really interesting or they're passionate about and be able to bring those here and teach on those and preach on those. But uh, these incredible individuals who are a part of our congregation, uh, they're volunteers. So to be able to find the time to create a message and then get up here and deliver it, uh, regardless of their impressive theological training and public speaking experience, which they have, is still something you're asking a volunteer to do. So the goal is for there to always be less of me and more of other people and other voices. But because I'm a staff member, I just fill in the gaps of where other people have things going on. Uh, and December is a pretty busy month, so that has been a lot of me taking those those Sundays on. So that's why you could see like eight weeks without me and then eight weeks of me. That's not the plan. That's just what happened. Uh, so hopefully uh, as you kind of see that, you know, like there's no kind of rhythm or rhyme there other than we really want to have uh, lots of amazing people that are here be able to preach and communicate, but they're not always able to, and that's when you get me, okay? So... We are in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, and had a fascinating conversation last week. This was helpful reframing. Uh, We were talking that uh, if you look at Mark, and we kind of talked about the scene of the triumphal entry with Jesus, that actually it was uh, was a bit more kind of political theater of what Jesus was doing, and it would have been quite absurd, and that there's this phrase within Greek um, tragedies called a hyperkeme where there was this huge jubilant moment right before the colossal failure. And its rise and kind of how amazing it wouldn't deliver on any of those promises. And it was an intentional movement within a Greek tragedy to really um, get at how devastating the loss was. And the reason why we talked about is if you look through Mark and you read it out loud, it actually reads really well as a play. It would take about one hour to read out and kind of talk about. And if you can imagine people getting together and witnessing this play or acting out this play, it's a really kind of, it works because there's a lot of movement and and then and and then. So as we talk about this, I want you to kind of envision some of the things we're talking about as movements in a play or a movie or a TV show, some sort of narrative that's going Uh, Because I think that's a more helpful way to engage in it and think of it than just, I will now read from our sacred texts. Hither be the whatever old English words. So uh, think of it as a little more life and a little more fun and a bit more daring. So we're going to start reading in Mark 
12. Uh, the context kind of going into this, as we looked last week, is that Jesus has been kind of moving around in the northern region uh, where there's still very much Jewish settlements, but then he makes a beeline halfway through the book down to Jerusalem, which is the heart of the entire Jewish Roman world. Um, and he's going there during Passover, which would have been a high holy holiday. Um, and in doing that, Jesus is really taking the action to the central spot um, of kind of the Jewish world. So all of the tension is rising. All of the drama is climbing. And in this, we looked last week that Jesus went into the temple and he cleared it out, which would have been a highly dramatic uh, movement and moment as well, that Jesus wasn't shy about kind of pushing on the tension. Um, and furthermore, one thing that uh, I like to, to point out is there's a lot of times where we look at the words of Jesus to be on like doilies or sweatshirts or bumper stickers. Know that after these words that Jesus spoke, they killed him. They killed him. So if you're like, Jesus was just speak like words of truth and love and joy to everyone. And these monsters over here killed him. No, he was poking bears the whole time and knew exactly what he was doing. And he was relentless in doing that. So if you don't feel a bit of cringe at the words of Jesus, that means you're hearing it with 21st century, I know how the story ends ears. And like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's my friend. As opposed to, this is a guy most of us would not want to hang out with because it would be really uncomfortable. And not for you, but like everyone around you. And probably you sometimes. But he was a bit of chaos in his movement. So this is the kind of Jesus we read about in Mark 12, starting in verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then they sent another servant to him. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. They sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, okay. You should be confused by this. Um, and because that's a, a lot of the times that Jesus is teaching in parables, it actually says people left confused. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, this is a thing that we all know, so I'm going to use a story to make it clearer to you. Jesus was using intentionally confusing metaphors to people because there were those with eyes to see and ears to hear. There are people that could get it, and he was speaking to them. He wanted them to come with him and go. So there's one of the interesting aspects about Christianity. You're like, oh, it was super clear and obvious to everyone. No, it wasn't. That's why they wrote all the stuff down afterwards. 
And I imagine when they wrote it down, they went, wait, do you remember that one thing he said? Oh, we totally missed it. That goes in the book. Write that down. And it's an invitation for us to say, what are we missing about right now that we're not hearing and we're not getting? So the vineyard story, one, um, we talked last week when Jesus, at the end of throwing people out of the temple, he uses two quotes. He said, it was supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And that these would have been lines directly pulled from Old Testament prophetic uh, messages. And as we went back and looked at both of those references, both of them were about inclusion of the foreigner. That ultimately, you were supposed to create a religious system that was supposed to be welcome and accessible to all people, and you failed to do that. That is taking it from its goal, a house of prayer for all people, and that's turning it into a den of robbers. So, Jesus is quoting again in Isaiah here when he's talking about God's design for creating this big, beautiful vineyard. And that ultimately, this is how they would have interpreted and seen Jerusalem. That's what it is. The question is, who is the vineyard for? What's the purpose of the vineyard that's been placed here? Um, we, we kind of have a hierarchical chart that I want to put up that you're not going to be able to read the bottom, and that's kind of the point. Um, but this is kind of an understanding of the hierarchy, a hierarchy, yeah, we're good, uh, of the first century. So you have the Roman Empire, which kind of rules everything. And they're bringing about the Pax Romana, which means peace through military might. Rome is in charge because they have the biggest and best military. Then, under there, you have the Herodians, and this would have been around Jerusalem. The Herodians, these are the people that are following King Herod. So if you imagine you're running a whole Roman Empire that spans multiple countries, huge swaths of land, you don't have the internet and the ability to quickly uh, communicate with one another, then what you need is people on the take from you and very much afraid of you in charge of these local areas. So King Herod, who is Jewish, was the person that was in charge of this area. And the Herodians were people that pledged their allegiance to King Herod. Under that, within the Jewish religious system, you would have Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests. Any religious leader would have been seen as a very prominent person. But because of the political realities, they wouldn't be more powerful than the Herodians. Then we have Jewish men, Jewish women patriarchy. don't know if you've heard of it. Then we have Gentiles, uh, because if you look again at the, the temple in Jerusalem, the first court that everyone could come into, that was for the Gentiles. Any person in the world could come into that part of the court. And then they had a spot just for Jewish women, and then a spot just for Jewish men, and then just a spot for the priest. So that actually gives you a pretty good understanding of that hierarchy. The priest the men, the women, the Gentiles. Then you have slaves, and then at the very bitty bottom, you have children um, who are, will become human at some point, but until then, they are property. And actually, furthermore, uh, male children are property, will become people. Female children are property, will become larger property. It's a very much the understanding of this world and how it would have functioned. And we're going to look at exactly that story in a bit. So in this setup, the idea is that, uh, and then kind of jumping forward, when this is written is in the late 60s, uh, not 1960, just 60. Uh, 
66 to 70 is when we have the Jewish revolt. And we're going to talk more about that because the fact that it's being written during that time very much uh, speaks into what stories are being pulled from Jesus' life and why they're being shown, the impact of them being shared then. So what happens in 66 is the Jewish people lead a revolt against Rome. They say, we're not paying you any more taxes. And taxes were huge in that conflict. They actually started creating uh, their own currency, which they would buy and sell, and they were leading a military revolt against um, the Roman Empire. It actually worked for a couple of years, which is amazing. And then the Roman Empire came, uh, they, they put, laid a siege on Jerusalem, and then they destroyed the temple. So, if you think of these people as, as saying, our job here in Jerusalem is we are the keepers of the vineyard. And ultimately... Anytime that someone comes to check in on the vineyard, we're going to kill them. And then ultimately, this is going to set us free. If we kill enough Roman centurions, if we kill enough Roman officials, if we overthrow enough of these people's threats on us, then we will be free, then we will be safe, and then we will own this land. Which, just catch that line of dialogue. At the end, it says that they sent the son. And what did the people say? If we kill the son, then it will be our inheritance. I'm not like an inheritance lawyer, but I don't think that's how inheritance works. If it was, that's an awful loophole, and we should close it immediately. You don't just kill people, and then you get their inheritance. That's not how it works. It's not Highlander. So... You, you have to understand that the, the, what they're thinking they're going to accomplish by killing and destroying people is the absurdity of the story. And what, what Jesus is ultimately pointing at is if you look at this allusion to Isaiah and Isaiah 5 and what the vineyard was, the vineyard is here to feed and supply and be the blessing for all of the people. And you've closed it off, and you've built walls, and you try to keep it for yourself, and you've launched a war of violence on anyone who comes to receive or anyone who comes to check in. You think you own this. And you think that enough war and violence will make it fully yours. And Jesus is saying, that's insane. And someone is standing before you now telling you that's not the purpose of the vineyard. And you know what? You're going to kill me too. You're going to kill me too. So most every Sunday, we have a time of conversation and um, just like the people around us. And I intentionally waited because I wanted to link it within the message itself. Um, You don't have to be big on current events to know that the the U.S. launched a drone strike, uh, strike on a general in the Iranian army and killed him this week. Um, And there's lots of conversations about this as an act of war. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that when this happens, immediately we find out that whoever the United States just killed, what a horrible, bad human being this person was. Obviously, they should have been killed. We did the right thing. This was self-defense. We had to call a drone strike on this individual. I am not saying or trying to excuse or say ultimately 
what the United States did was the murder of a saint. But what I am trying to point out is the same absurdity that we see in this vineyard is a bit of cyclical absurdity we see in our country. How many people do we have to kill so we can be safe? How many people have to die so that we can be safe? And I think that's a question of our day, and it was a question of Jesus' day, and it's a conversation that's worth having. What is the relationship between peace and violence? How much violence accomplishes peace? Or is there something about violence in and of itself that will always work against the aims of peace? And any peace that we see will ultimately be a mirage. But all we did was we sowed more seeds of violence. I don't want to be simplistic and say, if we just give the whole world a hug, then everyone will be happy and will be free and everything will be fine. But what I do want to say is what Jesus knew back then is that cycles of violence don't bring about peace. They bring about violence. And so what I want you to do is to be able to turn to the people around you. And I will absolutely agree, this is the most uncomfortable group conversation we've had here. Usually it's like, what kind of puppy is your favorite? And you're like, I have thoughts. But I want you to be able to, to talk to or maybe just listen and sit with, what is the relationship between peace and violence? How do you see these things working out on a micro level in our communities? How do we see these things working out on a national level? And how do you see these things working out on a world stage? So if you could turn to the people around you, say your name, uh, gr uh, greet one another, and then go ahead and share, what's the relationship between peace and violence? I think one of the most interesting questions um, that doesn't often get asked in these times is when we say, well, these people were an enemy of the state or an enemy of the United States, is why? How curious are we as a country about our place in the world? And if there are people that want to cause harm to the United States, a good question might be, why do they want to do that? And is their degree, because I really do think this is where the church should be the best, is there an aspect of repentance that needs to take place on a global scale? Is it possible that saying there are systems that the United States government has created internationally that we have to say we apologize, we repent, we want to make reparations to other individuals and countries around the world, that this is something that could also play within it? Is it possible that peace could come through peace? and not just war. And I think that this is what Jesus is getting at. Uh, the reason why I feel that is Jesus' death is ultimately the very top that you can get to of a nonviolent resistance. That Jesus at no point uses violence against any of his captors, any of the people that come across him, and I think that Jesus is doing that, not saying, hey, you just roll over and die if anyone tries to attack you or take you. But he is illustrating the insanity of violence. And ultimately, in a resurrection and a movement of Christianity from that point, the futility of violence. What has, what has this violence got you? Where has it taken you? And I think Jesus is calling us to, we want to talk about a narrow path, a narrow way. A narrow way is a place of bringing peace and turning the other cheek in the face of violence. 
and saying that the ultimate aim that we all want, a world of peace, is not found through more death and destruction. At least part of the story I think Jesus is telling when he talks about the vineyard and pointing to his own death at the hands of those there. I want to look now at a great story that follows that, because this also very much ties into this vineyard metaphor and the, the things that are going on in the world then. This is in Mark 12, continuing in verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is a story uh, that I I grew up being familiar with. I I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. But a lot of the teaching that I received on this is really boils down to, see what a skilled debater Jesus is? They tried to trap him, and he was like, no, too quick. And he got out of it and kept right on going. While Jesus is certainly skilled in that way, and that is an aspect of what Jesus is doing here, that's not all that there is to the story. One, I want you to notice the setup, because it's some really top-level manipulation. Uh, if, you, if we can go back one slide, do you see how they started it? We know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You know what, Jesus? You tell it like it is. You don't care if there's a bunch of people that are sitting right here that would kill you for answering this question wrong. You're going to say the truth no matter what. Isn't that right, Jesus? And Jesus, like Admiral Akbar, yelled, It's a trap! They got out of there. So here's one thing that's really uh, interesting to note. That coin that was being used and circulated did have the face of the Caesar on there. If you know anything about the Jewish religious system that was going into it, idolatry was a huge no-no. So to carry a coin with the face of a man that people talked about as God, the Caesar was seen as God, would have been religiously intolerable. There were certain religious Jews in Jerusalem that would never carry any Roman money. They certainly wouldn't have it in their pocket, and if it ever was pulled out, they refused to look at it. This is why, when I talked about that, the revolt that happens at the time of this writing in 66 to 70, they get rid of all the Roman currency there in Jerusalem. They make their own. Uh, this is the uh, Jewish shekel that was created, that they've, they've found evidence of this. This is how seriously they took, you don't hold this kind of Roman currency. So notice the move when they're like, what should we pay? And Jesus said, hey, who has a coin? Because he doesn't. Jesus doesn't have the Roman coin on him, and neither does his followers. And who is he talking to? The Pharisees, the most religious of the religious. Oh, that thing in your pocket might mean that you're in someone's pocket as well. You're trying to trap me on what should we really do, but it turns out that you are very much benefiting from this Roman institution and structure that's happening. 
What Jesus is exposing is they're trying to trap him in his position because we have the hierarchical power. Our power dynamics say that we have more authority in Jerusalem because, Jesus, you're not from here. You're not a teacher from here. And you brought all your hill and country people and whatever, but this is Jerusalem. And they're going to catch him in a lie there. And what Jesus is exposing them is in you're trying to entrap me demonstrates you're already entrapped. You're already a part of the system. And around and around it goes. You want to get to the heart of the whole thing is whose economy, whose kingdom are you really a part of? Because pledging allegiance to any country that exists on this planet will mean the exclusion of others from other countries. To be a part of any kingdom here, there will always be some aspect of protecting national interest. And what Jesus is saying, as long as you have that coinage in your pocket, there are some people that you're okay with being out there and you're okay with them dying. But there's another kind of currency that I'm talking about. When it comes to God, where no one's excluded and everyone gets to be a part of it. The message of Jesus wasn't just skillful debate. It was radical inclusion. And again, this would have been a beloved message from all of the people that have felt excluded and oppressed and marginalized for a long time. How do you know something being preached today is a message of Jesus? Because it's good news for the oppressed and the marginalized. And yet consistently in our Christian churches, we are preaching messages that are just good for some and usually really bad for marginalized and oppressed people. And I'm not talking about implicitly. I'm talking about very explicitly. Which is one of the reasons why the gospel is found in marginalized and oppressed places because they just get it. They didn't have to study it. They just know it. And this is who Jesus is talking to. The last story that I want to look at, we have more theological debate. Hooray. Okay, Mark 12, 24. Uh, the Sadducees came, and I just want to lay out who the Sadducees were. We, we've kind of talked a little bit about Pharisees before. If you're not familiar, Pharisees were religious leaders that believed that, hey, we have these Ten Commandments we have to follow. But if we're really serious about the Ten Commandments, we need to create multiple rules about every commandment. That means you never get anywhere close to ever breaking it. So the Pharisees were the people that had three to 400 rules that they would follow and live their lives about. And you can hear this when Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, and he's like, you give a tenth of your dill and your mint, these precious spices that you would have bought a tiny bit. You give 10% of that back to God, and yet you harm the poor and the widow, and you don't care about the orphans. So what he's talking about is you follow all the rules, but you've lost the plot. The Sadducees would have been religious leaders, but they would have been the religious leaders of the middle to upper class. So there was very much a a classism thing that was going on here as well. And you could make sense that there is a certain kind of religion that works best for people in middle to upper class. But that is not a message that tracks for everybody. So these are the Sadducees, and they say, hey, a person, uh, they're married, they die, they live with their brother, the wife then marries the brother, and then, and just ultimate kind of absurdity, we got seven brothers and it's not like a beautiful musical with seven brides and seven. It's just one wife and a bunch of death. And then it's like, at the end, all the brothers die except one. 
who does she marry in the afterlife? And you're like, what are we doing right now? This is Jesus' response. Jesus replied, are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? This is one of the saltiest lines in all of the Bible. He's going at the religious leaders, and he's like, hey, do you not get it because you don't know the Bible? That is so, so shady. And I want you to get how much that they would have burned with anger, that that's his first statement back to them. And what he's saying is true. You're studying the minutia of the Bible, but you don't get it. You don't get it. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This refers to another part of the argument where they say, hey, we know resurrection's not real. So if there was resurrection, then it would be easiest. So like, who are they married to? Well, then just the first husband. And they're making allusions to kind of these laws of Moses and how a wife is passed from one husband to another. This is what's really interesting. A lot of times when this passage is taught on, it just becomes another way of talking about heaven and how great heaven's going to be. Uh, and we were having a conversation. We were with some friends at a cabin. Someone said there was a book called 90 Seconds in Heaven. Has anyone heard of this? Is this a true thing you have? I want to release a book called Seven Minutes in Heaven and see if anyone gets the joke because I think that's funny. There's a way of talking about this story where we're just trying to imagine, well, what is heaven like? And when we think that's what Jesus was talking about and that's where Jesus was going, then we're just trying to say, so when we get to the gold streets and when we get to everything that heaven's like and the beauty and the splendor and the oceans and the doves and the birds and whatever your heaven looks like, who's married to whom? But I think there's, again, something more going on here when Jesus is not just addressing them in this way, but talking about Moses. And to talk about it, I've, I've said before, we are using heavily uh, Binding of the Strongman by Ched Myers. But there is a quote that he uses um, from a, a theologian that I think is really appropriate here. This reference replies directly to the question of the continu uh, continuation of the patriarchal family. In the burning bush, God is revealed to Moses as the God of promise and of blessing given to the patriarchs and their posterity. The house of Israel is not guaranteed in and through patriarchal marriage structures, but through the promise and faithfulness of Israel's powerful, life-giving God. While the God of the patriarchal systems and its securities is the God of the dead, the God of Israel is the God of the living. In God's world, women and men no longer relate to each other in terms of patriarchal dominance and dependence, but as persons who live in the presence of the living God. The Sadducees have erred much in assuming that the structures of patriarchy are unquestionably a dimension of God's world as well. So too, all subsequent Christians have erred in maintaining oppressive patriarchal structures. What Jesus is addressing, and by the way, they're not like, oh, we read a feminist theologian and then like they're talking about it. It's in the Bible. Paul, who most feminists aren't a huge fan of, is the one that says in Christ there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. 
you keep on trying to replace, you think that the blessing of God comes from these marriage structures as if that's the wildest extent of God's imagination. The best God can do is like, well, when a man marries a woman and they stay in this particular way, this is how God will bless you. The image of God is in each and every single person here in this room. And what Jesus is trying to bring to the surface here is you're trying to protect the law and the systems and structures that only work for some people. The only reason you can ask that question in the first place is because women are property. Who does she belong to? Not who is she. Not how is she also in the image of God. Not does how does she exist in the world. Not how do we see the divine nature within her, but who does she belong to? We need a flow chart to kind of understand what happens with this piece of property in the afterlife. Ultimately, the nature of God is so far beyond our systems and our structures of this world that we have a lot of work to do. And we keep on using God to support existing systems to say this is the best of God's imagination. This is the best of who God is. And if we just protect these systems and live in this way, then we'll be free and then we will find it. And it's not there. Ultimately, God says you want to protect these rules and laws, but that's the God of the dead. This is the God of of the living, the God who is beyond us, God who sees our systems and saying, how are you seeing and valuing everybody in this society? How are you seeing and valuing everybody in this culture? And if any system requires some people to be passed on as property or some people to be second characters in a story, it's just not God's story anymore. And it's certainly not Jesus' story as he goes through and teaches this. My hope is that as we go through this, one, I hope you hear something this morning you haven't heard before, but I don't particularly care about novelty of that. Maybe you've heard it all before and that would be great. I hope you are filled with wonder to go back to the Bible and say, what was Jesus saying versus what was, if you happen to grow up in a church, what was the religious structure I grew up in saying? There are a lot of religious structures that really benefit from certain systems uh, existing. And because of that relationship, they will oftentimes unconsciously support certain systems because it's the most beneficial for their church system. But that doesn't mean that's what Jesus was saying. That doesn't mean that that's where Jesus was leading us and going. And if you find that God is always behind you in the evolution of seeing and valuing all people and the peaceful thriving of all people, then it's probably a symptom of a church structure, not God. That's not where God is. God is so far ahead of us. God is so far beyond us. There isn't anything that we start to wrestle with societally and we're like, this is going to throw God for a loop. I read the book. He's not going to understand this. He was alive in zero. What could he possibly understand about 2020? That God is always ahead of us. And we see in the stories that God is continually saying, come on. And when they come on, he's like, and there's more. And I have more to show you about how you see and value and respond to one another. There's a lot happening in the world in 2020. 
And my hope is that we can embody a true kingdom of God mindset and reality in the ways that we see each other, the ways we treat each other, and the systems we're willing to participate in. May we look more and more and say, I want to financially, I want to politically, I want to personally invest in systems that are invested in the thriving of all people, not just some. And that requires asking more questions, and this is huge. It requires a lot of grace for yourself and for others. I've spent most of my life screwing up and investing in oppressive systems. So I have to say, yep, this has been a rough journey to now. But that doesn't have to be 2020. That doesn't have to be tomorrow. And there's a way where we can say this kingdom of God isn't just a reality then where we're arguing about who's married to whom. But it's a reality now that we get to participate in and we get to see more and more of it come to life. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your vastness. I thank you for your grace, God, your beauty and the ways that your ways are above and beyond our ways because they give life and light to all people. And God, as a society, we've used that line that your ways is beyond our ways to harm and oppress people, to justify oppressive behavior. God, I pray that we would submit to those systems no longer, and God, we would participate in those systems no longer. May we truly be transformed by you, God. God, you weren't just speaking about ideals or spiritual ideas, but God, you were talking about realities that we live in and the ways that we treat and see one another, not just on individual, but on systemic levels. God, open our eyes and lead us to the place you already are, ever forward. It's in your name we pray, amen.